The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoretti Show. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas Gregoretti, speaking to you from Los Angeles, California. Today's guest is going to speak to us about conflict resolution, which is actually something I've had challenges with in my life for a long time. Uh, I only got the hang of it a couple of years ago. I noticed that I used the excuse that I just wanted to just, you know, be cool and Let's all just get along and let things flow smoothly. And I think there was part truth in that. Like I do just want things to flow smoothly and I don't see the point in in conflict generally, but I also know that sometimes it is appropriate and necessary. And there was a period in my life, in business especially, I had a, a business partnership where I should have stood up to this guy several times and I didn't because I was afraid of conflict. And I traced that conflict fear back to the trauma from my childhood. My parents had a very contentious marriage. And it's my belief that when you're surrounded by conflict at a young age, it doesn't necessarily make you immune to it, as you would think, you know, like we could hypothesize that, you know, if you're exposed to something at an early age, you kind of develop a a callus towards it. But I think in some instances, it goes the other way and you actually become hypersensitive to it. And that's what happened to me. I remember very vividly my parents arguing and shouting and fighting. And man, I just fucking hated the way that made me feel. I absolutely hated being around that. And moving into to school and stuff, I remember it was actually strange because as a young kid or, or like a, a teenager, I didn't like, I still didn't like conflict, but I actually stood up for myself much more than I did as an adult. Like if someone wanted to fight, like a a kid was bullying me, or if he called me a name or something, I'd just say, let's fight. And sometimes I got my ass kicked, but still I wouldn't, would never back down. And then I think as I got older, I started to believe that the best way to deal with potential conflict was just to ignore it. And just, as I said, like, Let's all just get along. Let's just go with the flow and let's just take the path of least resistance. And that was an erroneous way of thinking. That was an inaccurate perception of the world. And what I've realized now is as with any other fear in your life, when you face conflict, you need to you need to run towards it and face it head on. And that's the healthiest, most masculine way to, to deal with conflict. So our guest today, Mr. Jerry Fu, gives us some very good insights on how to do that, how to do that in the workplace, how to do that in relationships and other avenues. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode of the show with Mr. Jerry Fu. I'm here today with Mr. Jerry Fu. He is a conflict resolution coach for Asian leaders, as well as someone who's dedicated to helping people become the very best versions of themselves. Good to have you here, Jerry. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. You know, I put you on the spot just before we started recording you know, because you're, what you do is quite niche, a conflict resolution coach for Asian leaders. Uh, and I said to you, I'm sure I've got a, several Asian listeners, but it's 
that's, as I said, quite a, quite a niche. How did you come to be involved in that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So in coaching, you know, a, a common theme and message that is shared among new coaches is to, um, you know, think about who your ideal client is. And that usually means uh, the who you are, you know, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, I know I always had a heart for other Asian professionals who may have struggled to deal with conflict in a way that's actually productive and helpful. And, you know, I know what I wish I had learned uh, in terms of becoming a more effective leader earlier on in my life. So at some point, yeah, I just decided that a career and calling to really help develop other people uh, would really be the most satisfying thing to do uh, with my time and my efforts. So uh, here we go. Interesting. So, I mean, I have a few Asian friends. I wouldn't say a huge amount, but uh, I didn't realize like is, is conflict resolution a thing amongst Asian people? Do they do they have issues with conflict? I mean, everyone has issues with conflict, but is it especially prevalent with Asian people? Yeah, sure. So I'll give an example just to kind of help set the stage properly. So take, for example, at one point uh, when I was in college and I was home for the summer and one of my college friends uh, said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm road tripping through your area. I'd love to stop by and hang out for a couple of days. And so I said, yeah, you know, and I talked to my mom about it. She was fine with it. You know, so my friend came over and we hung out and everything was fine. And, you know, we had a good time, but then as soon as he left, my mom began complaining about how, you know, he left the guest room a mess and that he didn't clean up his hair in the shower and all these other things. And there's, you know, you just have these expectations, right? that apparently you're not allowed to communicate because you don't want the guests to feel embarrassed or antagonized or things like that. And so we're just taught to let them, you know, kind of have their way. And then, you know, we just kind of get over it, you know, on our own time, even if it takes, even if it takes may take forever. And that was the model for me in terms of dealing with conflict. Anytime someone, you know, didn't meet your expectations, you were just supposed to just kind of suppress whatever resentment or anger you felt and uh, you know, just kind of keep it to yourself. Is this, is this related to the, the Asian concept of, of uh, I think it's called saving face or keeping face? Is it similar to that or is it aligned with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, it's an honor-shame culture, right? And, you know, on, on one hand, the tactics they use can make us very productive. Uh, it just leaves us with very large emotional scars, you know, after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about that. I've never heard it expressed as a, as an honor shame culture. I just know that when I was, when I spent time in Asia, I was explicitly told by other people, like, you know, you never want to make one of the the locals, whether it be Thai or Vietnamese or Japan, Japanese, depending on where I was, you never want to make them look bad by calling them out in front of others, which it's not really something I'd ever really do anyway, but I just always found that interesting. And that, what does that mean in honor shame culture? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great thing to unpack because I think a lot of people, you know, need to really understand the the nuances and and ways to kind of quote, you know, navigate the stage or play the game, right? What you want to do, right? Like things, there's a lot of unspoken expectations that you kind of learn about, and a lot of times you learn about the hard way. So, for instance, you know, my mom. And my dad would tell me, hey, work hard and, you know, eat all the food on your plate and do your homework and 
practice your instruments because that's what brings honor. You want to bring honor to your family name. You want to pass along the family name. And they kind of threaten you with shame or they withhold affection uh, because they're afraid if you, uh, you know, provide too much affection, then the kids get complacent and they're not motivated to work hard. When the irony is that actually when kids are more secure in, in the love of their parents, that's when they're more likely to, you know, take risks and respond well to the challenges, knowing that they are secure in their parents' love, right? And so, yeah, so you have these things where people are just taught, oh, I need to do things that get honor. I need to avoid things that bring shame. And this sets, sets a very uh, unhealthy lens in terms of failure, right? Because when you fail, uh, you bring shame. And for me, I would shut down if I got like a bad grade on a math test or something like that, right? And I just didn't think of failure as something that would actually help me towards long-term success. I just didn't want to admit that I was bad at something, right? Because that brought shame. And so we get caught up in that. Uh, and then we know we tell ourselves a lot of toxic things in the process of dealing with failure and shame and not knowing how to separate the two. Wow. This is, this is very interesting to me, Jerry. Uh, from my own personal experience, you know, I've, I've been trying to unpack the idea of unconditional love. And when I, I looked at certain patterns in my life and, and certain things that uh, were causing me strife because they were repeating as patterns, I realized one of them was related to this idea of the lack of unconditional love from my, my mom in particular. I mean, obviously my mom isn't Asian, but she was incredibly hard on me when it came to academic performance. And I kind of get it. I was a very, very intelligent, bright child, but you know, it was like, if I didn't come first in the class, it was, you know, she was just disappointed in me too. And it got to the point where I just stopped trying because I was like, fuck it. If I'm not going to, if I'm not going to be first, why, why put the pressure on myself anyway? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Silver medalists have a terrible track record of depression. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So let's say someone grew up in this particular paradigm, right? Their parents didn't give them, or their parents shamed them for not doing what they wanted uh, or achieving what they wanted. What's the first step you believe to, to repairing this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because it depends if you're coming at this from like the angle of a kid who's dealing with a parent that's showing a little too much tough love, or if you're a parent that's used to saying, hey... I want to push my kid harder, even though he's fairly successful, right? So I'll give an example that came down from my grandpa, my dad's dad. I remember because this, I could see the patterns in my own life and how my dad used that blueprint on me. You know, my dad came home at one point with like a 95 on the exam, right? And then my grandpa told him, well, why didn't you get 100? Then you're just like, well, I thought, <laughs> you know, uh, so much for the 95. And, you know, and even worse was when friends would use it against me. I would a 108 on an exam, right? There's like bonus points, but I, I made some careless error. And then, so even though I got over a hundred, like I technically got an A plus, there was someone else who would ace it and beat me and he would, and he rubbed it in my face. That's they're going, great. I got a 108. Like I missed something. And everyone else is saying, you got an A plus and you're unhappy, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay. So I guess if you were coming at it from the angle of a parent who says, Hey, you know, I need to break the cycle of this, of this shaming, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, take a moment to celebrate your kid's success, right? To say, Hey, you know, let's say he comes home with a 95. Wow. You know, 95, good job. Hey, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what else was on the exam that may have still tripped you up a little bit. Right. And so you balance out the, Hey, 
uh, success is good. And there's still a learning opportunity here, right? So instead of using but, you use and, right? So it's not, you got 95, but you could have done better. It's 95 and let's see how you could have done better, right? You gently, uh, you know, kind of finesse this out and make sure that they understand, hey, I'm not doing this to still pick out what you missed or to somehow undercut your success. I'm just trying to be sure that uh, we're more prepared uh, the next challenge that comes along. Right. And then as a kid, obviously it's easy for me to say, cause I'm not at a stage in life where I have to answer to, you know, my parents as much as I would if, if I were in my teens, but to say, Hey mom, dad, you know, I got this 95 and they say, you know, why didn't you get a hundred? And it's like, well, mom, dad, you know, last I checked, you know, 95 is still really good. I'm willing to still learn from my mistakes and to unpack those. And I'm asking you to, you know, help me enjoy this grade a little longer before we get into those learning moments, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. The, the question I was actually asking is, uh, and I should have phrased it more clearly, which is, yeah, okay, let's say I'm a 32-year-old man listening to this podcast. My, let's say my parents have passed away, right? And they left me with this legacy of sh- this shame and guilt, and it, stunt, it stunted my growth, and I don't really know how to move forwards. What, what steps should I take to healing this within myself? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and thank you for the clarification. Cause yeah, you know, you can take it from all sorts of different angles. So yeah, let's say you are at a point where, yeah, like someone grew up with a dad who was really harsh on him. Right. And then somehow an accident took his life or, you know, he died of a heart attack or because of irresponsible living, right. Just really, really harsh life. And then, you know, this kid just has to, figure out how he's going to forgive his dad for all the, all the pain inflicted on him. Right. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, if you wanted to do some kind of self therapy, you know, part of it is, you know, journaling, right. Like taking time to not let these thoughts rattle around in his head and just beating himself up and not really paying attention to what he's telling himself. Right. So, yeah. So let me say it this way. Number one is to generate awareness, right? Let me journal these thoughts. Let me catalog what I'm thinking and what I'm telling myself, you know, why am I telling myself this? Like, where is this coming from? Right. Maybe uh, you enlist the help of some friends that you trust with this kind of information. And maybe you see what kind of thoughts they have around, you know, trying to get around that. And at some point, maybe you enlist a coach, to really be that powerful mirror and figure out what kind of productive actions you can take. And if somehow that's not enough, maybe you take it to a higher level and seek out professional counseling. Mental health seems to be more prevalent than ever, especially with this pandemic. And, you know, just about every counselor that I've talked to is booked up straight for like several months. So whatever stigma around mental health issues has clearly gone away because people realize there's just so much stress in this world and they need a, they need, you know, professional help to deal with it. And that's perfectly okay. Just be honest with yourself to say, Hey, you know what, as much as I want to believe that I can solve my own problems, um, sometimes you need a, a little help, a little catalyst, a little boost, uh, to really get you to that point. Yeah. Interesting. So let's go back specifically to the conflict resolution elements. So I'm sure I know your work is tailored towards Asian people, Asian leaders, but I'm guessing it would have application for anyone, right? Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. So to elaborate on the niching part, right, it's kind of a funny paradox uh, with niching because a lot of new coaches are afraid to niche because they're afraid that that excludes potential business when actually by giving yourself too wide a range, like you don't really, it's like you spray too wide and, you know, you don't get any kind of 
return, right? So when I niche down and I say, yeah, I help out Asian leaders with this conflict, and then one of three things happens, right? Number one, uh, someone says, wow, you know, I'm, I'm in his demographic. Uh, I do uh, struggle with those pain points. Uh, maybe I help, maybe I hire this guy, right? The second thing that usually happens is I don't, you know, I'm not in the demographic. I don't struggle with that, but I do know someone in my friend group who does. Maybe I make an introduction, right? So now I have referrals, right? And there, or a third, you know, someone says, well, I'm not in that demographic, but I struggle with those pain points, you know, and I would love for you to help me, you know, navigate my own challenges with conflict and such. And so, yeah, as we like to joke about, you know, we rarely turn down paying customers, right? But it's, it is. Actually, I turn them down all the oh, time. Great, yeah, right. I, I, I just refuse <laughs> to work with people that I don't know, who I don't get the strong understanding or impression that I can help or that, that aren't on the same kind of vibe. Like I just, I just know because it never works out well. So I'm learning mm, in, in life. I'm sure it's something you understand. It's, it's who you say or what you say no to is just as important as what you say yes to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great reminder. Yeah. I mean, if, if the vibe isn't right, this is just as much a match for the coach as it is for the client and, you know, uh, desperation is never a compliment. (laughs) Exactly. Conflict. It's something I, it's the strangest thing because, you know, I deal with physical conflict all the time and, or I did for most of my adult life as a martial arts instructor, I would, you know, like you have a a jiu-jitsu match with someone and it's a form of physical conflict. Right, even though it's got very strict parameters to it, it is it is a conflict. But interpersonal conflict of a non-physical nature was always something I really hated, like detested. It's actually one of the things that kept me out of working in an office, is because I remember my first couple of experiences working in corporate, there was like some interpersonal conflict, and I was like, I hate this shit so fucking much. I just, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And so that's why I decided to work for myself. I've gotten better at it, but I'm still, it's still something I, I, I don't enjoy. So I'd love to know some tips from you when it comes to conflict resolution and just conflict management in general. Anything you can share would I'm sure be greatly appreciated by the listeners as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to, you know, share all the times I've skinned my knees and the lessons that I've learned from that to help kind of help people uh, navigate their conflicts a little more effectively for sure. So I guess I'll start off with a couple key like turning points that kind of helped me realize that I couldn't stay safe. The first is just to realize that you can't afford to tolerate bad behavior at any level, right? Uh, If an employee is underperforming, and you just sit there because you're afraid that you're going to antagonize them or they're going to, you're going to lose your popularity points because you've decided to bring up something that made you upset. That's only going to hurt you. Right. And that was really what I realized is that, you know, I was put in enough situations where you realize that you can't avoid, you can't afford to stay comfortable because the consequences are too great. Oh, and an example I'll give just to make this more concrete. At one point when I was serving as a church class director, my second day on the job, I found out that a newer guy in the class was sexually harassing women in the class. And they said, Jerry, you know, you got to handle this. You're director now. And I'm sitting there thinking, you didn't give me a manual. <laughs> you know, They're just like, you just, just got to handle it. And I'm just like, I don't know how. They're like, well, you still have to. And it's just sitting there thinking, okay, well, you know, let me just jump in and think on my feet and hopefully something, you know, productive comes out of it. But, you know, that's not great either. And so the framework that I'll give that I've started to share a lot uh, lately, number one, uh, you have to first envision what a, what a successful conversation would look like. Right. So in this case, you know, I have to think about, okay, well, you know, Nate is 
all right, I don't know him that well, but I know that I need to address this with them. So, okay, let me bring this up with him and trust that like he's going to, even if this bothers him, that this is being brought up, that he trusts that I'm, I'm really just trying to help him. And so I think about, you know, some kind of phrasing that would go along those lines. Uh, the second step is to find 10 seconds of courage. Uh, too often people think they have to be like completely ready or like Superman or Wonder Woman, right? And they're like, okay, now I'm ready to do this. It's like, no, you, you just need 10 seconds of courage to get the ball rolling so you can't back out when the stakes are higher. The third is to script your key move. So in line with, you know, what a successful conversation would look like, write out all the things you want to be sure to address. So in this case with data, I say, hey, you know, this has come up and we need to discuss the possible options and possibilities that have arisen from the information that's been given to me, right? Uh, and then fourth is to rehearse those key phrases. So ideally, you know, if I'd had more time, I would have kind of rehearsed with a friend and just kind of done some role play. Maybe it's something similar, like a, a lady trying to negotiate a race with her boss, right? And she just goes to role play with the friend to play as the boss and anticipate what kind of pushback her boss might give her. So after you've scripted out your moves and rehearsed your moves that you kind of practice in the mirror or recorded yourself, right? And just make sure you have a confident tone and that you uh, have anticipated how you might need to improvise off your main themes. Then number five is just to go do it, right? You've come too far not to follow through on this conversation. So the keys there really, yeah, make sure you have, you know, like this standard operating procedure or like a checklist where, you know, like, okay, if I could go through one through five, I'm going to unwrap this a little more easily to, you know, the heart of the matter. Uh, and then just to trust that, yeah, I just need to kind of push the boulder just enough to start to get the boulder rolling down the cliff. And then, you know, now we're going to get better and try and struggle and fail and, and get better at it. Because that's the other thing I would mention. Uh, people need to realize that conflict resolution is a skill like any other that takes time and practice before you get that muscle memory, right? Before it becomes kind of, it feels like instinct at this point uh, where you can realize, Hey, but even though I, even though like I've, I've had plenty of practice, I'll admit like there's times I'm just like, I really don't want to have to address this problem anymore, but I already know myself well enough to understand how to overcome like these, these old habits that, you know, have sabotaged me for so long. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. I worked with someone for a long time, almost eight years. We, we ran a business together and there was uh, the last, during the last few years, there's a lot of conflict between us and I dealt with it, but I just got to the point where I was like, life's too fucking short. <laughs> it's just like, I just, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to deal with this anymore. And is that something that you have a, a paradigm for a protocol for? Is, is there a point where it's just like, okay, it's just time to pull the plug. The, the method isn't working. Is Do you have a, a strategy for that or do you have experience with that? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, happy to share more examples and experiences to, to do that. And yeah, so another myth that people need to get past is to realize that because you know, I, I was guilty of this myself, right? Uh, people think that, oh, well, if I were really that good at conflict, I could restore every relationship to 100%, right? That somehow we can go back to being completely as if we never hurt each other, you know, and that we can just enjoy being around each other as if nothing happened between us. And that really isn't the case, right? And so I think of like what John Maxwell says when it's like train, transfer, or terminate when it comes to, you know, relationships, because, you know, for a lot of strong relationships, right? It's usually just training like with a roommate or with a friend, you know, maybe he has an annoying habit and you just kind of sort out your expectations and negotiate and, you know, come to an understanding and make some compromises. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're fine. 
right? For other people, you may have to transfer to say, hey, you know what? Things are kind of incompatible for whatever reason. So why don't we flip you to a different department or, you know, give you a different set of challenges to deal with. And then, you know, we might not see each other as much, but hey, we're still going to have enough space where we can get along and not get, you know, not get on each other's nerves, right? So, you know, uh, I know plenty of friends who they thought they'd be great as roommates, they move in together, right? And then all of a sudden, like all their habits uh, that they didn't have to deal with as friends all of a sudden come to life, right? But other times you have to terminate, you know, I've been fired before and I had to evict a roommate just to kind of flip that side around. And so in this case, right, closure, what a successful conversation looked like was not, well, hey, you know, if you, as long as you pay back the money, even though you've already technically defaulted on your lease, like you can still live here, like we'll still be okay. It's like, no, no, no. You know, there are consequences for uh, not honoring this lease. And so you're going to have to move out. And I think another angle to take is with John Maxwell talks about how trust is really the, the ultimate determining factor as to whether or not you enjoy being around someone. And so your uh, threshold for trust is different, right? For friends than it is for employees, but you still have to be honest about where that trust lies, because if there's a friend that you have who continues to break promises or flake on you, you know, that's going to cost something in the relationship, right? Same thing with employees. At some point, if you've decided that after three write-ups, they're still not performing the way you need to, like you've given them three chances with very specific feedback and how they need to improve in order to stay employed with the, by the company and they're still not going to, okay, basically it's almost got to do a gut check at that point, right? How do you feel around them? Do you feel good? Probably okay. But at some point, if you just realize, God, I feel resentful and I can't stand this any longer. Okay. Now maybe, maybe that's the, the ultimate factor that will determine whether or not this person should still be in your life. Yeah. Oh, there's uh, many things that come up for me. What was it? Did you say train transfer or terminate? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to use that myself with several relationships in my life. You know, Jerry, one of the things that I, I learned way too late in life is there's a realization, I realized it way too late in life, which is that not everyone is supposed to like you. It took me a long time to understand that not everyone is supposed to like you. And in fact, if you want to make any kind of a, a splash or create anything cool in the world, it's probably going to be more accurate that a lot of people are going to dislike you because they're going to be envious or they're not going to agree or they're, it's going to be rubbing, rubbing them the wrong way in, in some regard. And that helped me a lot when I just realized it's cool. If, this, if someone doesn't like me, it's okay. As long as I like me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for that, Jerry. It's really cool. I wanted to ask you about, um, you have a, a maxim that you live your life by, which is failure is neither fatal nor final unless you declare it to be. I find that fascinating because it's something that's helped me immensely over the last year is this understanding that I get to define what failure is, right? What it looks like, and more importantly, how I react to it, right? So if I fail at something, even I, I could either reframe it as a, as a success, you know, because it's a learning opportunity or say to myself, okay, when I fail, I don't get all depressed and fucking down and rage quit. Instead, I say, okay, let me use this to make myself better. And I'm guessing it's kind of in line with this failure is neither fatal nor final uh, idea of yours. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm happy to talk about just how I was stuck in a really unhealthy mindset about failure because too often I, I said, well, if I fail at something, then I, then I as a person, therefore a failure. This was true for relationships. This was true for my job, you know, like when I got fired and, you know, I 
thought, oh God, you know, how am I going to explain to the friends who helped me get this job? How am I going to explain to people that are asking me why I'm not with this great company anymore? And he, and you realize, you know, I remember a friend helped kind of literally judo flip the situation when, you know, I was, I was struggling to find gainful work, you know, after that incident. And I remember telling him, you know, I was like, that getting fired had to be one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And then he thinks for a second, he goes, could you look at it as one of the best things that's ever happened to you? And in that moment, I just remember thinking to myself, oh, I, I guess I have to, but what do I tell people now, Nick? Like, you know, failure, it's my choice to define whether or not this failure means I am an ultimate failure or a total failure. Right. Or I can, I can be more productive about and say, Hey, you know what? This was the wake up call I needed. And now I'm really going to pursue. This is what freed me to pursue what I'm really passionate about because I wouldn't have discovered leadership coaching, conflict resolution coaching. If had I not gotten fired. Sure. It's a funny, uh, I had a business meeting the other day and the, the guy was a, someone I'd never met before, but very interesting man. And he said, uh, isn't it funny how life makes sense in reverse? You know, when you look back at it, like everything starts to make sense, whether it be relationship failures or job losses or whatever it might be. And I guess that's the prime example. You know, we've all had that thing where something happens and it literally is the end of our world. And, you know, a year later or two years later, you realize, man, that thing had to happen. Literally had to happen for me to go to the next level. Yeah. Awesome. Jerry, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I know that my conflict resolution skills have been upgraded to a degree. I'm still not going to actively seek it, but if it comes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some of those tips you used. If those listening want to find out more about you and, and what you do, where should they go? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn to look for the conflict resolution coach. Or if you want to go direct, you can go to my website at adaptingleaders.com. I have a free download on the framework that we discussed in the podcast. So that is no strings attached. Just send me your email and I'll provide it, send it right over. Uh, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute call just to share your story or a challenge you need a little help navigating. I also have a free blog on interesting books that I read and, you know, summarize so that, you know, people, if they're busy, they don't have the time to read, then you can just read my summary and takeaways and hopefully that'll be enough. That's cool. I mean, that's the thing that interests me the most, actually, the, the summaries of your blogs. Where, where can we find that? Yeah, the website is adaptingleaders.com and then just click on the blog. Yep. Jerry, thank you so much for your time, my man. Hey, you're welcome, Nick. Uh, hope to continue the conversation down the road. While reflecting on that conversation, I was reminded of a, an expression, which is that weakness invites or invokes challenge. And I think there's some truth to that. When you try to hide from the world or something in the world, such as a potential conflicting situation or conflict-laden situation, it's almost like you become a magnet drawing that to you, right? Now, I know there are some people out there who actually actively seek conflict and enjoy it. And I'm not saying that that's the kind of person you should be. Those people are total assholes, usually in my experience. But when you realize it's a stand needs to be made or that there's something that needs to be someone or something that needs to be faced, if you hide and back down from it, that thing's still going to find you. And then it's going to find you on its terms, not yours. You won't have the prime mover advantage and you won't be facing the situation with courage. You'll be facing it through fear and that never ends well. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's my perspective at the moment. And uh, 
I'm going to be using that to navigate for a better reality for myself. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. As always, it always helps me out if you guys leave a review on iTunes. So head on over and leave a review there. I think we need a few more. Uh, no, we need one more. I'm on 99 reviews. Been stuck on 99 reviews for a while. Once it gets to 100, uh, apparently it gets your show much more interest than the algorithm shifts you higher up. So that would really mean the world to me if you'd head on over and leave a review. Also, if you've read my book and you enjoyed it, it would also mean the world to me if you left a review on Amazon. You can just search Nicholas Gregoratis Aligned on Amazon and it'll pop up there. If you've read it, just go ahead and leave a review. If you haven't yet read it, go get a free copy at coachnickg.com forward slash book. That's coach then nicg.com forward slash book. Hope you guys have a powerful week and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Until next time, may the force be with you. 